so the paper that I'm going to give tonight, um, or this evening, um, has its genesis in a very specific set of experiences. And I think because of the specificity of the paper, the fact I'm going to drill down into one very particular set of experiences, I just want to tell you, I want to be honest, about the origin of the paper itself. About um, probably nearly 10 years ago now, um, I was teaching in Cambridge in one of the theological colleges in Cambridge, Westcott House, training Anglican ordinance. And one of the things I began to realise is that anybody going out into ministry was going to be required increasingly to deal with immigration as a pastoral matter um, in their communities. And that this was not a special interest topic for a small number of people who might decide that this was their bag. This was something that if you were going out into ministry, this was simply going to find you. It wasn't a question of you just going to find it, as it were. So there was a local immigration detention centre just on the outskirts of Cambridge at that point. It's now closed down. And I thought to myself, right, I'm going to create a placement for my students. If I'm going to put them on placement there, I should put myself on placement there first. So I put myself on a week-long placement in this immigration detention centre. And I think sometimes, as a theologian, something happens to you that disrupts business as usual. And I was busy imagining that I was going to carry on the trajectory from my doctoral research of working on Julian Rose and Hannah Arendt and Simone Weil, and I experienced the week in the detention centre as a total interruption of my plans. Now, in one sense, it felt like an interruption at the time, and then gradually what I came to realise was that it wasn't an interruption at all. It was actually part of understanding the significance of the earlier work. But I felt claimed by that experience, and I think I then went on to work there um, as a volunteer for about five years. But what they, that experience taught me was that sometimes something is presented to you that demands your attention as a researcher and you simply have to pay attention to it until you're done with it or it's done with you. And unfortunately, this has not been done with me yet. Um, so all this time later, I'm still wrestling with what started off as a one-week experience. So that's the genesis of the paper. So if you're wondering why it's focused as it will be in a very specific way on trying to read and interpret practices of immigration detention, that, that's the truthful answer. Okay? So, I begin with a quote from Rowan Williams. Talking about evil is talking about a process, about something that happens to the things that there are in the universe. Evil is not some kind of object, so we might render the phrase from the city of God, but we give the name evil to that process in which the good is lost. We give the name evil to that process in which the good is lost. Focused on the practice of detention, this paper seeks to forge connections between the metaphysical resources of the Christian religious tradition, the lived experience of migrants who are detained, and public political discourse of good and evil as it relates to migration. Much recent theological writing on migration has tended to focus more on deontological, ecclesiological, missiological and doctrinal questions. And it's engaged in a way that perplexes me far less with the metaphysical resources of the Christian tradition. So this paper presents a case based on detainees' own description of their experience for an engagement with a wider range of theological resources. Rather than seeking to relate conceptual insights hewn from a theoretical tradition over here to lived experience over here, imagined as a kind of separate sphere of action, this paper represents a limited and partial attempt 
to listen to the conceptual and metaphysical insights that emerge, that is to say, are already present within the discourse of those who are detained, and to find the discursive connections that might be made between or from this experience within a specifically Augustinian tradition. So I'm relating the insights which I think are present in the language that detainees use to describe their own experience to the insights of a specifically Augustinian Christian tradition. So I'm going to say a bit now about immigration detention as a practice. So this is going to get quite technical uh, for a brief period of time, but this is so we know what we're actually reflecting on theologically. Recent studies of European, Australian and North American public policy responses to forced migration have emphasised a significant shift in the way in which liberal nation states exercise state sovereignty vis-à-vis forced migrants. Central to these shifts is the exponential growth of immigration detention. The use of immigration detention for administrative purposes has been a feature of European public policy since the 1970s, although the growth of detention as a serious form of border control dates from the 1990s and the 2000s in most European countries. During this period, detention has been used primarily as a mechanism for enforcing deportations and for responding to perceived security concerns. However, over the past decade, there has been a significant shift towards towards the use of administrative detention as both a basic form of so-called reception for arriving migrants and as a form of overt (coughs) immigration deterrence. The routine administrative detention of those seeking international protection as refugees is well documented. And whilst constituting a trend across Europe, over the last 12 months, it has found its most extreme examples in southern and eastern Europe. In March 2016, the Hungarian parliament voted by an overwhelming majority to routinely detain all arriving asylum seekers in guarded detention camps constructed from shipping containers for the duration of their application process. In 2015, Italy and Greece introduced the use of so-called hotspots for the rapid reception and processing of new arrivals. However, as multiple reports have shown, the hotspots have quickly become forms of de facto detention and have extended detention from a practice clearly regulated and limited by law to an arbitrary practice exercised seemingly beyond national judicial oversight. Whilst Italy and Greece have legislation that provides time limits for detention, provision for judicial review, and policies that prevent the detention of unaccompanied children, current practice in the hotspots contravenes each of these rules. The fragmented and reactionary response to displacement from the war in Syria, as well as large-scale displacements in Africa and the Middle East, have been matched by an exponential increase in the European practice of immigration detention and a fundamental blurring between reception, registration and detention practices for forced migrants seeking international protection. Now, if Southern and Eastern Europe provide examples of some of the most unregulated and draconian detention practices, 
The UK provides an example of some of the most extensively and routinely used powers of detention deployed over four decades. In the UK, we have held the power to detain immigrants for administrative purposes since 1971. However, this power was relatively little used and was introduced partly on that understanding. In 1993, 22 years after the creation of this power, there were just 250 immigration detention bed spaces. By 2015, that number had risen dramatically to 3,915, with 32,000 migrants detained per year for periods which range from a few days to several years. At the moment, there's a case of somebody who's been detained for almost four years, and that um, is something which has also happened previously. Most of those who are detained in the UK are either asylum applicants being processed through what was called the so-called fast-track process, a process recently ruled illegal by the High Court, visa overstayers, those who are undocumented or stateless, or those who have served a prison sentence for arriving with forged passport or irregular papers. Torture survivors and children are not supposed to be detained, although there is significant evidence that both categories are routinely detained. In the UK, there is currently no limit on the amount of time that a migrant may be detained, the only Western European country where this is the case. The European limit is generally between 21 and 28 days. Interestingly, three of the parties standing uh, uh, with their manifestos for the election next week have pledged to put a time limit on detention. That's the first time that's happened in a general election. The general UK trend is towards increased use of detention as a tool for border management and an overall increase in the duration of the use of detention. Now, to begin to talk about detention in this manner is, however, to risk evading a central paradox concerning what is and is not visible in the case of immigration detention. While state structures form a kind of panoptic culture, immigration management, through the formulation of new disciplinary institutions, detention is a practice that the state prefers not to discuss, wishing to keep it as, paradoxically, both a space of hyper-surveillance and yet also public invisibility. Oakington, the detention centre that I volunteered in, was notoriously difficult to find. It was not signposted, it was hidden away in the back end of a village. So it's a place of total control and yet extraordinary invisibility, and I think none of that is accidental. The geographical isolation of centres, the limited access to sites, and legal challenges to freedom of information requests speak to this reality. Migrants are typically moved into centres through the use of dawn raids and frequently moved between centres at night. Centres are often located in places of low public visibility. Such stringent restrictions placed on access also mean that researchers have tended to rely on high theory rather than empirical study to ground <coughs> their analysis drawing, for example, heavily on Foucault, Agamben and Arendt. Agamben's dystopian work uses the condition of the camp as a reference point for all forms of biopolitical power and provides an analysis of the state of exception in which norms of law are suspended. Foucault's analysis of the Panopticon describes the conditions of disciplinary visibility and invisibility 
in which the prisoner or detainee becomes, quote, constantly visible, seen, but he does not see. He is the object of information, never a subject in communication. Arendt writes of bureaucracy as a form of domination, the faceless administrative enactment of violence through structures that aim to ensure human compliance to bureaucratic end goals and which cannot admit of the question, why? This rule of nobody, which is Aaron's phrase, this rule of nobody is facilitated by structures that appear morally blind. Manufactured bureaucratic facelessness ensures the erasure of the face of the other. However, such analysis from high theory is revealing only to a point. As Mary Bosworth has pointed out in her groundbreaking ethnographic study, so she's the only academic researcher to have got serious, proper access to immigration detention, and she's done an extraordinary ethnographic study with staff and detainees. And so hers is really the only properly empirical study that we have available. So as Mary Bosworth has pointed out, such high theory tends to be poor in representing the ambiguity and the complexity of real human interactions that happen within the state of exception as experienced by those who actually inhabit it as place and time. Both detainees and those who live in camps, as well as those who enter and leave these places as so-called hosts, as staff, activists or pastoral accompaniers, interact to form transgressive spaces, practices that disrupt, resist, and transcend the crude narratives of the state. And I'll go on to say a little bit more about that later. Such claims for the complexity and ambiguity of detained space, place, and time find expression in the words and writings of those who have themselves been subject to detention or the life of the camp. Yusuf Cosme talks of the camp experienced as, quote, time more than place. He suggests, quote, in crucifying time, neither it nor we can recognise the crucified. He's a Muslim um, poet, by the way. Cosme's insight into temporality and forced migration are striking. Time matters for those who live in detention or in camps as a central moral frame because our typical ways to mark and measure time no longer hold in these environments. It seems important to attend carefully to exploring detention as a place that in its simultaneous distortion and intensification of temporality defies the typical narrative structures that we might use to talk about, say, prison forms of incarceration or border control and yet still somehow this experience must be narrated. Detainees describe the extreme distorting effect detention has on perceptions of time. And this is to quote um, uh, a report uh, which is the, for, it's a parliamentary report based on detainees' testimonies. In prison, you count your days down, but in detention, you count your days up. A medical doctor who works with detainees notes, quote, by being detained indefinitely without knowing how long for and with the continual possibility of both imminent release and removal, D 
Detainees worry that, de that detention will continue forever and also that it will end in unexpected deportation the next morning. They have the simultaneous concern, both, that there will be sudden change and never-ending stasis. It is the lack of temporal predictability that prevents individuals not only from being able to plan for the future, but also from having the ability of knowing that the present will remain uncertain for a protracted length of time. I don't have time to talk about it here, but it brings to mind some of Simone Weil's comments about affliction and the nature of affliction. As one author notes, time in the context of detention is weaponized. These are lives where normal experiences of time are ruptured. Now we need to remember that detainees are incarcerated for administrative purposes. These are not people, by and large, who pose a formal threat to the public, and yet high levels of social control and the deliberate manufacture of human isolation and the distortion of time are institutional structural features of detention. So are removing people from the communities or networks of association that they have been part of, and preventing such possibilities for solidarity forming very often in the first place. Now, in some obvious ways, the experience of the detainee is similar to that of the prisoner. However, in other ways, it is very different and indeed probably more akin to the survivor, the, the victim of torture. Similarities include the experience of the compression of time, the generation of fear, the atomization of social experience. Detention, whilst not torture, and it isn't in one sense, arguably mimics key elements of the torture experience. One detainee, Hassan, describes his experience thus, quote, Detention is a prison. There is torture, not physical, but still torture and great suffering, end quote. Detention might be said, therefore, to be a perfect reproduction of neither the prisoner's nor the torture victim's experience. It needs to be understood as its own distinct social practice. The notion of detention as a distortion of time emerges, I think, as an important and as yet not well analysed moral theme in detaining testimony. But the focus of what I want to go on to say more theologically in a moment is based on another kind of negative epiphany that occurs within detainees' reflection. And it's to that, the language of good and evil as it emerges, that I want to move now. And I want to quote, rather than short extracts from different detainees, I want to read you a letter written by a child who had been detained, uh, wrongly detained as a child, um, and he wrote when he came out this testimony, and it's written in the form of a letter from this young man to the staff at the detention centre, Colnbrook, where he was detained. Dear Colnbrook, I've got a few questions for you in relation to the three and a half months that you held me in detention. Why were the officers at the induction unit so mean? If you remember this is being written by somebody who's really relatively young. Why were the officers at the induction unit so mean and unwelcoming to me? I remember asking for a bedsheet and was given a pillowcase. I remember asking for a toothbrush and waiting for over 72 hours. I was treated harshly and spoken to rudely. Why was my asylum claim treated in isolation to my family asylum claim? 
I claimed asylum as part of a family, but was detained at Colnbrook all by myself. Were you just trying to scare me because I was so young? Why did you only tell me that I was on a detained fast track after 10 days of being on it? I hear it has been abolished now for being unlawful. Did you know how unfair and unjust it was when you put me on it? Every day I watched your staff go home to their safe beds and to their families and then return again the next morning. How did they live with that, knowing what we were going through? Why were we locked up in a room from 9pm to 8am every day? What was the point of this? Where were we going to go? Up and over the barbed wire? What message are you trying to send to the people that you detain? The officers at Colnbrook would always say, this is a high security detention centre. It wasn't, it was a high security prison. I even had a prison number printed in bold on the front page of my medical report. And yet I have no criminal record and I haven't committed a crime. I guess my question is, despite this, did you see me as a criminal? I saw an old man in his late 70s with a walking stick. I saw a guy who had just had a major operation who struggled to pick up his medication. There was a survivor of torture covered in scars. I heard people screaming at night because they were going mad inside Colnbrook. What exactly is your definition of vulnerable if you are detaining these kinds of people? I prefer to call healthcare in Colnbrook the inhuman treatment centre. Are the staff there medically trained? Are they aware of medical ethics? Do you know that once I was given the wrong medication, complained of dizziness, the doctor checked my medication and told me, yes, sorry, the nurse gave you the wrong medication. Really? Do you know how many times I left healthcare with tears running down my cheeks simply because I was terrified that I'd been given the wrong medication again? Do you think you'd be able to talk about your problems with someone who is doing everything they can to tell you that they don't like you? I ended up feeling that their evil was intentional and a calculated attempt to terminate my life or create complications for me. Were the staff in Colnbrook told to try and make my life and the lives of my family an agony? Or were they just following orders? I met a lot of people who lost hope because they didn't know when they were going to get out. If, is this why you don't have a time limit so that people give up? Even though I have been out now for two months, do you know I still have a panic attack every time I think about the horror I went through? Three weeks ago, I almost fainted at the police station where I usually sign just because I saw two immigration officers walking towards me. In that moment, I thought I was going to be arrested. I thought I was going to see you again. Other detainees approach the terrain of evil in more apathetic terms. Quote, I felt this is describing how this individual feels about the nature of detention itself. I felt like someone had plunged me into the middle of mystery. Quote, how many other experiences in life can be expressed only through silence or depression? The worldview that produces detention has been described by secular theorists as, quote, Manichaean. This characterization of the system of detention and expulsion as Manichaean is deeply revealing. Not only does the official view 
divide migrants sharply in terms that bear no relation to the narratives, desires and aspirations of migrants themselves. But the official system appears unable to understand that it begets value-laden systems and terms. These moral narratives of the state are disciplinary narratives that shape the experience of time and space for migrants. They are also, of course, narratives that migrants themselves reshape, subvert and resist. The question of the good, in other words, both in relation to the state and also migrants' experience, <coughs> refuses to be foreclosed. It is continually reopened. Secular theorists use the phrase Manichaean to capture this dynamic, the presence of ideas of good and evil that tend towards dualistic formulations which envisage particular, usually highly racialized categories of the human other as evil. Nonetheless, this is a loose and largely rhetorical use of the language. My suggestion is that a route to develop this insight in more focused and nuanced terms is found via Augustine. <clears throat> Augustine holds, sorry, Augustine's notion of evil holds that evil is without substance, a negation or privation of being and goodness. What evil is, <coughs> sorry, what is evil does not have being in itself, but rather is parasitic on what is and what is good. Evil is non-being. The claim that evil is non-being should not be confused with a proposition that evil is an illusion, nor a claim that evil is felt in empirical terms as anything other than the deepest of agonies. Rather, Augustine's claim for evil as non-being forms the basis of a case that evil can only meaningfully be thought of as residing in a disordered good. Rowan Williams narrates Augustine's argument thus, if evil itself is never a subject or a substance. The only way in which it can be desired or thought is by the exercise of the goods of mental and affective life swung around by error to a vast misapprehension, a mistaking of the unreal and groundless for the real. The more such a pursuit continues, the more the desiring subject becomes imprisoned enslaved, hemmed in, the more the typical excellences of the will and intelligence are eroded. However, that does not mean that the effects of this nightmare error are lessened. Hence, Williams expounds Augustine's view that sin and evil gain their force not merely as a move from focusing on higher goods to lower goods, but through a continual process in which the good and what is evil is misrecognised and embedded as a lack of the good through the force of habit. What we experience as evil, therefore, is not so much a lack, but the effect of a lack, the habitual displacement of true by untrue perception. In Book 7 of the Confessions, Augustine emphasises a repeated theme in his theology, that a failure to grasp the good and a willingness to fall into evil manifests an improper or distorted form of seeing, a distorted visualisation of God 
and a distorted visualisation of ourselves as human creatures. Evil, felt as a very real force, has no real substance and is ultimately, as an insubstantial reality, inexplicable. Our human bafflement at the felt sense of evil in our lives does, in one sense, have a metaphysical correlate. To propose that Augustine's account of evil is mystery is not, however, to turn him into a postmodern advocate of the idea that, matter and that the matter and experience of evil is ineffable, that no positive account of the presence of evil can be rendered. Whilst it is difficult, even impossible, to describe an experience that is powerful and yet meaningless, we should also expect that we could describe and analyse the external features of the systems that we experience as evil. So we might not be able to, to, ex to explain the way in which evil is felt in the experience of the individual detainee, but what we can do is explain and analyse the constructive, positive presence of structures that <coughs> manifest and mediate that evil. The intense planning that facilitated the Auschwitz transport systems or the enacting of racial segregation can, in fact, must, be meaningfully spoken of and analysed. Discrete, concrete institutions and practices mark the experience of evil as lack. Thus the process in which the good is lost can in part be charted as a positive reality which is open to critique. Such a constructive analysis also forces us to account for the goods that are frustrated, absent, or destroyed in such settings. So in the context of detention, detainees are very clear about the kind of goods that they think are frustrated or destroyed. Family life, bodily self-determination, and so forth. Expressed differently, in the case of both the use of the goods of rational organisation for evil ends, and the frustration of the basic practices that human beings aspire to, what makes such positive rational discourse possible is an account of the prior goodness that such evil is deficient in the face of. As Press states, that evil is able to cause anything at all is owing to the goodness in which it parasitically inheres. That it causes harm is owing to the fact that the good in which it inheres is not good to the degree that it should be. Disordered goods can provide an explanation for evil's vitality, power and force." End of quote. In this light, Rowan Williams describes Augustine's account of evil as consciously despatialized talk about God and evil, which is to say that part of the task of Christian formation is both to challenge an ongoing historical process of misrecognition in which the good is lost and therefore acts continually to despatialize talk about God and evil. Evil is not matter that we identify in a spatial manner, but rather the temporal processes of loss or corruption are the things that we identify. Nonetheless, the central theological point is positive and constructive. Evil is something that is redeemed over time. Theology as a discourse of the good is thus talk about temporal processes of clarification, 
reconciliation, self-discovery and love, the process that leads us beyond rivalry and self-protection. And yet processes of corruption and misrecognition as we fail towards the good are not opposed to this temporal process of clarification and reconciliation in a binary way. They are taken up into the life of the good and transformed as Augustine's own narrative makes clear. Thus Augustine rejects and counters both any understanding, sorry, both any dualism that understands evil as an invasive other and any naive account of moral innocence as the thing we should be aiming for. He replaces this with an account that positions evil within the self and society as a process in which the good is disordered and lost. So to return to detention. I've staked myself in this paper upon the claim that an Augustinian account of privation has something distinctive to offer to our analysis of contemporary immigration practice. Indeed, I've said that I think it's a neglected resource that provides us with ways to see, to think and to act beyond the dualisms that structure our current politics of immigration. I am claiming that Augustine offers us language which speaks simultaneously to both the systemic and the personal elements of immigration detention. The public rhetorical representation of forced migrants is, I think, strikingly reminiscent of Augustine's analysis of the deformed Manichaean account of evil as a real invasive alien moral other. Clearly one cultural option is simply to reverse the trope of who we see as the evildoer and who we see as the virtue bearer. So for example, we might cast government and the nation state as evil and migrants as inherently always virtuous. The other option might be to reject such morally loaded terminology as always too dangerous or just useless. A few weeks ago I was giving, not quite this paper, but using some of the ideas with a group um, from across the north who worked directly with uh, forced migrants, mainly with asylum seekers and refugees uh, at a grassroots activist level. And the woman who was speaking after me was using mimetic theory um, to explain why you should never ever talk about good and evil. The only way in which you can kind of make public discourse better is to always jettison any talk of good and evil because you always misrecognise both. So the thing to do is to say simply, you never ever use it. And that, that's the way to transform the language. So I'm not just spinning these out as theoretical possibilities for uh, ways to respond to this dilemma. They are real um, and they're present in our public discourses. So the second option is simply to reject. The first one is to simply turn over who's good and who's evil. So just to reverse the binary. The other is we reject the language of good and evil completely um, in favour of a more realist, self-critical or pragmatic approach. What I am suggesting is that a third approach in which we take Augustine's nuanced vision of this language seriously as a challenge to think what we are doing, to think about the purposes of public practices and institutions and the processes that such practices and institutions enact. Mary Bosworth's ethnographic account of detention makes clear the complex, multi-layered unclarity in thinking about or within detention. The detainee, when listened to carefully, often struggles for language to capture the experience, expressing lostness for words with regards to the moral purpose 
of the experience that they had just been subjected to. But equally, staff working in the detention estate struggle to articulate the moral purpose of their work and under pressure to make it meaningful, resort to bureaucratic language of process and contract. Public documents oscillate in their articulation of value and purpose, reinventing and rebranding the practice at alarmingly regular intervals. Resistance to the tendency for a rule by nobody stems from a determination to hold the system of governance to account for thinking in terms of its core goods and their manifest absence. Drawing from Augustine, I have suggested that evil can be understood as the effect of aiming at disordered goods, and that such an account raises a series of questions about the good in the case of detention practice. Which goods are aimed at as positive goals by those creating and enforcing detention? And how do we subject these, uh, subject these to evaluation? Which instrumental goods are used as the means of manufacture at, in, sorry, which instrumental goods are used as the means to manufacture and enforce detention as a practice? Which goods reveal themselves to be suppressed when we measure the answers to the first two questions in the light of detainees' own experience? Such questions can help us to consider which goods might be considered disordered in the case of immigration detention. Detainees speak of the disordering of basic goods latent in detention practice. Communication, solidarity, familial ties, possibilities for work, ease of access to the law, the regulation of bodily activity, freedom of movement and association. In place of these desired goods, detention is seen as marked by practices of non-communication, which aim to generate fear and increase compliance. <coughs> the use of spatial isolation in order to break down networks of human solidarity, the distancing of non-citizen from citizen networks of support to increase compliance with removal or case rejection, and practices which lead to the physical breakdown of the human body and mind. Reproducing the experience of exile and strangerhood through which one becomes a stranger to oneself as well as others is what the system of detention creates as the basis for compliance with territorial expulsion, minimising territorial access and integration during lengthy decision-making processes or aiming to produce deterrence to future fictional and generic migrant others who might contemplate territorial arrival. When I did some negotiation work with the Home Office six or seven years ago, I found it extraordinary that civil servants would say to me that the reason that they needed to apply different standards to migrants going through the system in the UK to, for example, citizens going through systems was because they had a moral responsibility to prevent other future possible migrants from ever making the journey. And so it was necessary as a moral good uh, to treat people in a way that they would not treat their own citizen population. It's an extraordinary process of moral thinking. Given the fact that detainees report a sense of active evil in their experience of detention, it can be easy to miss a central Augustinian point which we can derive from Book 19 of the City of God. To operate a system of detention requires us to use the excellences of human willing, intelligence and reason 
to create structures that express primarily that which we imagine ourselves to be against. Such practices require institutions that articulate a sense of purpose and, per and perpetuate themselves in light of perceived goods. In this sense, the system of immigration detention begs the question of the good and of excellence, which must therefore be open to reasoned challenge on the basis of both the harm it can be perceived to cause and the goods it deploys and claims to serve. This Augustinian insight is especially important when set alongside Bosworth's careful fieldwork among staff. She demonstrates an important paradox, and this is something that really interests me, that the system of detention is orientated in its external forms towards coercion and compliance with the norms of the sovereign state, and yet in its internal, interpersonal reality, it operates on the basis of few formal rules and regulations, and instead relies heavily on the interpersonal and effective skills of, of the staff. So in one sense it's heavily rule-bound, but in its own internal workings it isn't. And what fills that void internally is the interpersonal relational excellences of the staff. Bosworth, and it's different from prisons in that sense, Bosworth traces the reasoning of detention staff who are proud of their use of their relational skills to manage, in inverted commas, outcomes with detainees. And yet these staff struggle to apply moral reasoning to the purpose of their roles. So they can apply moral reasoning to their interpersonal one-to-one -one interactions, but they, the, the possibility of explaining the purpose of their role in the institution they work in in moral terms that breaks down, and at that point, they retreat back into a language about contract and bureaucracy. Their rightful pride in the use of mental and effective goods seems to have little real attachment to the purpose of the institution and a capacity to evaluate its moral performance. Based on policy statements, we can say that detention policy presents itself as driven almost entirely by purposefully unclear and largely negative forms of human reasoning. It is notable, however, that this narrative of purpose does not stay still. The attempt to account for administrative detention as a form of public good appears to be especially volatile, unclear and changeable. Over a relatively short period of time, quite different articulations of the purpose of detention have been produced by government and by those who oversee facilities. At one stage, they used to try to produce mission statements, and then they're just given up now. It is as if the government itself is unsure of the stable purposes of the social institution that it nonetheless continues to expand, an unsureness that permeates the lives of both staff and detainees. An Augustinian account pushes us, I think, to consider what is sought in the case of immigration detention is, however nightmarishly so, both parasitic on forms of disordered human excellence and can often twistedly be sought as a kind of good. It's, it's a misrecognised good, but twistedly it can be sought as a good. From an Augustinian theological perspective, however, the good in this case is subject to misrecognition and inadequate visualisation of divine and human sociality. We come to know this good as disordered in the mismatch between the state's unstable articulation of goods 
and the human experience, on the other hand, of both staff and detainees who inhabit the institutional processes. Given the misrecognition of goods inherent in this process, it is perhaps no surprise that detainees focus so much of their energy on trying to establish their identities, to be recognised for who they believe they are. In attending to such questions, it is vital to explore the inherently coercive and disciplinary character of the evil enacted in the name of a claimed good. When exclusion occurs in this way, those who claim the narrative of the good for themselves seek not only to repress their other, but to form and reform the other into a conformity to their own narrative of the good. Good parenting, and I have taken these, these next two sentences from things said to me by civil servants in the Home Office. Good parenting means returning to your country of origin, not persisting in living with children in the shadows of a state in which you have no status. Good immigrants travel with papers by legal means. This logic can be seen in the ways in which, both intentionally and unintentionally, the binary state view forms and deforms migrant agency and subjectivity. Whereas the penal system, admittedly on a good day, continues to engage prisoners in a form of dialogue about legitimacy in incarceration processes, it is notable that the process by which forced migrants find ways to make pathways where, where none seem to exist, to forge a sense of self in the context of geopolitical and economic adversity, is not only not engaged by those who structure processes of border control, but it is actively mitigated against in the widespread use of immigration detention. The rule of nobody erases faces and identities as it creates forms of social atomism. The panoptic culture manifests subjective non-communication, and both of these facets matter enormously to detainees. As the case of staff motivated by interpersonal care for detainees suggests, to talk about the evils latent within detention culture is not to suggest that where evil is experienced, either some kind of orientation towards or even talk about the good is absent. So people often say to me, well, isn't the problem that the system's just really legalistic, that it won't think in terms of categories um, of the good? Rather, the talk is a more analytical one Understanding the simultaneous presence of notions of the good in the case of detention policy and practice and the absence of its felt reality. I am therefore suggesting in ways that will doubtless feel alarming and counterintuitive or just downright pointless to some, that we might pay attention to the ways in which practices of detention emerge out of the expression of a particular version of the good and the dissonance between such articulations and the felt experience of detention at the level of the embodied subject and his or her relation to the social body. I was often in context where civil servants would explain to me why something they were doing was a good, and they couldn't understand why the detainees themselves were completely unable to see that they had their best interests at heart, the total mismatch. But if we miss the fact that these are discourses of the good that are in competition, one is a disordered good, the other potentially not, uh, we're missing something important. So to be clear, 
To raise questions about practices of immigration detention is not necessarily to object to all forms of incarceration per se, and I'm not necessarily saying at this point that there is never a scenario in which immigration detention might not be necessary. Nor am I suggesting that the state should not determine whether people should be removed from their territory. I am simply suggesting that we ask what kind of rational reciprocal communication is embodied in the act of immigration detention without time limit whose outcome is ideally constructed as non-admission, exile or expulsion? It is striking that the Augustinian focus on evil and privation understands evil as misrecognition and as a form of non-communication. While some forms of imprisonment can, I think, still be seen to sustain forms of communication in a situation of brokenness, immigration detention seems to me to represent the opposite. It appears a system that is marshaled empirically and metaphysically towards privation, in both the mundane and the theological sense. In the current context, and against the drift of public discourse, this implies a need to separate in our minds immigration detention from criminal justice, and to imagine and think of detention primarily as a form of border management. Hence, any concrete discussion of civic virtue and the public good attends to the broader question of the goods of border management, rather than the goods of detention per se, an institution for which a moral case still needs to be made, and to which, given its coercive nature, ambivalence and misrecognition, and, sorry, and which, given its coercive nature, ambivalence and misrecognition, I think will continually pertain. So a brief conclusion. The purpose of this discussion has been to use the resources of Christian theology, and particularly the more metaphysical tradition, to ask questions about the purpose and the nature of the growing practice of immigration detention in the UK. This is a practice we know very little about. It's also a practice that when we push intellectually at its edifice, we discover seems to know curiously little about itself. In this context, Augustine's metaphysics of good and evil can perhaps lead us to do little more at this stage than to begin by asking Arendt's stubborn question and the question asked by the detainee whose letter from Colnbrook we heard. Why? As the practice of routine administrative detention across Europe grows in the context of political stasis or refugee issues, and the experience of such detention comes to be described by detainees more and more in terms strongly resonant of Augustine's libido dominandi, we are surely prompted to a necessary rethinking of the practice of detention. Whilst the nature of what detention does to a person will doubtless continue to manifest in its negative or mysterious qualities. The rational structure of the enterprise continues to manifest its positive attributes, and these are endlessly open to possible questioning, to challenge, to resistance, and to reimagining. Augustine's gift to us, I think, is therefore twofold. A language to speak of evil as privation, and a language to speak of the prior and antecedent matter of the necessary goods that any system of public order and governance must serve. <laughs>